Our great God and our Father, you are here and you are good. You have called and assembled your people, a people whom you have washed, a people in whom now you dwell because you have made them able to receive your spirit through the blood and the sacrifice of your son. So now come by your spirit and speak to edify your people, to correct and to comfort, to, Lord, just to move in our affections that we might see you and love you. And as your word searches us, might we all the more be glad that Christ is our great Savior and you are our good Father. Do your work here, Lord, we ask in Christ's name and be glorified. Amen. In the summer of 2020, um, there were riots. There was looting that rocked uh, so many U.S. cities, right? You know, like, yeah, I lived through it, Frank. I was there. Um, it feels a little bit like that was something new, at least in my lifetime, at least in maybe recent generations. I don't know. You can debate that, and some of you might feel differently. But it feels like it's never even really stopped ever since. Uh, we've seen now, in the last couple of years, uh, stores in major cities, uh, huge hubs that are closing and they are citing um, loss and theft as the reason for why they're having to close their doors. They just, they, they can't stay in the black because things are flying out the door. Uh, you got other places where stores you go to and everything is just locked up. You can't even, you can't even get to it. So, I mean, I don't know if you want to buy a box of crayons. You have to get somebody's help, you know, to be able to get that. It's a little bit crazy. Sort of feels like stealing has become the new recreation of choice. Now, um, just so you know, up front, I'm not going to spend the next uh, 40 minutes in a rant. That's not what I have prepared, um, although I'd like to at times. No, we gather for the word of God. Um, I just point to the reality of the world in which we live that has gone just a bit crazy. And do you not see the headlines and watch the media and hear the stories or even walk into the store sometimes and pull out your hair and think, are you kidding me? Have we forgotten that this is illegal, or at least it used to be, up until three or four years ago. Let's just look at our passage this morning, Exodus 20, verse 15, is where we are. Back up with me, and I'm going to start reading in verse 13. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Exodus 20, verse 15, the eighth commandment where we come today. You shall not steal. Once again, we find a simple command with a world of application to us. And we find, like with every other of the Ten Commandments, though we can rant, and there's good reason to, at times we should, we also find that we ourselves come up short. From office supplies to timesheets at work, from unreported income on taxes to just taking credit for stuff that's not really ours, to picking flowers behind the sign that says not to. It has been said that do not steal is the command that no one disagrees with, and yet everyone breaks. My thought is, yeah, wait till we get to the ninth commandment about lying. Anyway, what we're hoping to do in our time in these ten words 
as Hebrew scripture calls them, is to see how they reveal God's wisdom to us, how they reflect his character, how they, they form the backbone of the society. There has to be a, a bare minimum uh, critical mass of agreement on these things, or otherwise things completely fall apart. We're seeking to magnify the beauty as we look into the law of our only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we're reminded of how much we just need him. And we're seeking to see how the law itself leads us, even rightly understood and rightly applied, to glory in the Lord even more. This morning, I'm going to, for the sake of our minutes, focus our time mostly on the third use of the law, the law as a lamp, the law as it guides and leads, the law as it demonstrates for us how to please God and how to enjoy life with him here in this world that he created. He kind of knows how it works best because he designed it and to walk in obedience and happy submission to his commands is to walk in the sweetness and the blessing that he gives. Now, it may not seem like do not steal is going to get us very far in helping us to live broadly in his grace, but that's just because we still need to appreciate all that the Eighth Commandment really carries with it. First, let's just notice quickly how the rest of the law unfurls this command, the Eighth Commandment, in its responsibilities to pursue loving conduct with our neighbors. This is in the middle of the second half of the law. The first half are our duties to God. The second half are our duties to man. And within the middle of that, we find this one, you shall not steal. We have responsibilities to love our neighbor. And it's the law of love that rightly put in context leads us into what true holiness is, what true godliness is. The Eighth Commandment and the law of love. If you would, look quickly at your handout, just pull that out, and uh, go to the side that says the Eighth Commandment at the top. And uh, here, we're only going to sample a few. Uh, they're looking at your handout. The first entry is infractions, specific infractions related to the Eighth Commandment. The second paragraph is duties, all right? You got eyes on that? So here's just a very short sample of how to love your neighbor in ways that are related to the command to not steal. Duties of the law included a tithe to be given every third year for the Levite and the poor. In other words, in addition to the tithe that was given to God, this is a separate tithe. In fact, there may even be a third tithe in Scripture, but that's another discussion for another time. There was a tithe that was given every three years that was designated wholly for the support of the Levite and for the support of the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and the poor. That is related to loving neighbor and the command to not steal. Because the understanding is this grows out of the Eighth Commandment. To withhold this is to steal what was due under the law of God in the theocracy of the nation of Israel. A second one here was to leave one's harvests, gleanings for the poor. Specifically in Leviticus 19, which Leviticus is the book of holiness, and chapter 19 is the chapter at the heart of the book of Leviticus that's all about how to live a holy life. If we were to go around and survey, hey, what does it mean to be holy? My guess would be that somewhere uh, in the majority of our answers 
would be negative responses. In other words, things we don't do. To be holy means we don't do this and don't do that and don't do that. That tends to be how, humanly speaking, we think of holiness. Not the book of Leviticus, not God, and definitely not Leviticus chapter 19. Sure, there are, are a number of things to abstain from. But Leviticus 19 is peculiarly beautiful because of its understanding and its commands for holiness by virtue of our engagement. And one of the things in the middle of Leviticus 19 is this command that when the Israelite was to harvest their fields or to to, uh, go and take their grapes or to beat their vines for olives or whatever it was, they were to leave the corners of their fields. Or they weren't to go back scrupulously and overly um, glean too carefully, but rather were to leave some in the fields on the vines so that the poor, if they chose to come in and put in a little bit of work, could come and glean for themselves. Is that not a beautiful system, a dignifying system to help people find a way who might otherwise be um, without an ability to provide for themselves? Well, that's a duty related to you shall not you shall not steal. The last one here, if you are there, you can set this down, uh, your little card, set it aside. If you're there in Exodus 20, go a couple pages further to Exodus 23. It's what I've referenced there on your handout, but I want to read it with you because what's going to happen immediately after Mount Sinai is going to be a laundry list of ways of these laws being applied. It's going to be case law and specifics that flow out of these Ten Commandments. And just quickly to look at one, Exodus 23 Verses 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Do you understand the motive behind what's going on there? You've got someone you don't care too much about, and you see their animal wandering away, and you're thinking, (laughs) good for Harvey. There goes his ox. It's going to be rough for him. I hope he never finds it. Or you're making your way down the road and you find that his animal has fallen and lamed itself, maybe even under a load. Maybe he's even trying to help it and you leave it. Notice that part of this command about goods included one's possessions when it came to things like animals, which were their property and also their livelihood. And it says here that the Israelite was to take concern for his neighbor's property and his neighbor's livelihood, except I've glossed over something, haven't I, when I said neighbors, because that's not what the verse said, is it? No, the verse said, your enemy's animal. So the command not to steal included such a law of love expression that even the one you were at odds with, you were to go out of your way to help their animals and return their property and show yourself faithful in time of need. The Israelite couldn't say, well, I haven't done anything wrong when it comes to this command. I haven't taken anything from anybody. Oh, yeah? Rightly understood, and we know this by commandment number eight. The law also includes the duties that are positive as well, to go after the the wandering animal, even of an enemy, to come and bring respite and relief to the one who was in a time of great need. The law called the Israelite to actively do what was right whenever given occasion. Well, that's just our launching point, the Eighth Commandment and the law of love for where we're going to go today. We could go on and we could 
We could talk about other applications, and they are many and varied of the Eighth Commandment. We could talk about the right to privacy, private property, sorry is what I meant to say, the right to private property. And we could talk about socialism. You got some notes on that in your handout. Um, all I'll say about that is socialism is super evil. All right, good, check, you got it. Uh, I hope you already get that in spades. But there are large numbers of people in our world today who are being taught and who are themselves believing that socialism is the answer. And in a world that's crumbling, they're looking for any solution, and there are those who would bring socialism as the answer to a world gone mad. Anyway, socialism is super evil. Check, you got that. But let's follow this track that we're on with the Eighth Commandment together with the law of love. Let's see how the New Testament as well carries, carries it forward in this light. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you would. Because on this side of Christ, what we have is that the moral law, of course, continues. The, the moral burden of the law continues, though the civil and the ceremonial aspects of it are not something that we're under today. The character of God has never changed, and the character of his commands for his people to live in holiness both its negative and positive aspects, are still binding on us today. But here's the beauty of studying this particular command, is seeing what happens now, especially now, on this side of Christ, in how the law has not just a positive element to go with the negative, but it also has the Holy Spirit living in us to transform us in a way that makes us pursue a path of life rather than just staying away from the stuff that would lead us down a path to death. The moral law in the New Testament continues to walk out our duties and show us how the gospel transforms us. Or to say the same thing another way, it shows us how Christ himself takes the thief, like we are in so many different ways, and makes us new. I want to look at one verse with you quickly, then one passage quickly, and then I want to use those as a springboard to contrast two lives. Got it? One verse, Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let's read. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. The book of Ephesians is three chapters of God's grace. There are almost no commands in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then it's three chapters of our duty in light of God's grace. There are almost no verses in the second three chapters of Ephesians that don't have commands in them. And the order is all the difference. Because it's God's grace through the gospel and what Christ has accomplished that transforms us and makes us new creatures so that all of the commands that come in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are all because of the solid foundation of what Christ has done in transforming us and making us new. And in this menagerie of commands, I don't mean to be negative in that, but there are just a ton of commands and they're all over the map. But Ephesians 4 especially is a little bit like Exodus 20. It's a little bit like Mount Sinai. It's a little bit like, oh my goodness, God taking a group of people in slavery, setting them free, and then once they're free and forgiven and redeemed, bringing them together and saying, okay, now here's how y'all live together. That's what's happening on Mount Sinai. That's what happens here to this group of Christians who have just come to faith in Ephesus that Paul's ministered to. And if you were to just look around in these passages, you'd find in this chapter, you'd find echoes of so many of the different of the Ten Commandments. Well, here, 
The eighth command is clearly on Paul's mind as he writes. He who must steal, he who, sorry, he who must steal, he who steals must steal no longer. And then where does Paul immediately go? Because he's rabbinically trained, because he knows the law code super well, he knows the law is, is not just a thou shalt not. The law is a thou must. This is your duty. And where he goes now is on this side of Christ, what you and I all have the power and no excuse not to perform to do. He who steals must steal no longer, but, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he'll have something to share with one who has need. Three positive commands come out of this eighth commandment rightly understood. Industry, work, investment of our energies, rather than just constantly being a consumer. Secondly, notice that work is a good. It's, a, it's an unqualified good. We understand that work was given in Eden before the fall, right? Adam and Eve were given a responsibility to care for the garden and to tend it before there was ever a sin anywhere in the world. Work is a gift. And yet, work is cursed in its experience because of sin, because of the fall, so that now with the sweat of our brow, it's hard to produce but rightly understood, it's a good. So industry and the blessing of good work, and then lastly, generosity that flows from what is earned from that work. What a beautiful encouragement. All of that actually flows from the law. This is not new with Paul in Ephesians 4. That's why I wanted to show you the stuff that was there in the law code before. But now on this side of Christ, it's just that the Spirit enters into us. And whether the call that you have, the vocation, is something that you, you go to work and you sit in an office and you do and you get paid for, or whether it is a vocation that doesn't come with a peculiar title, that, that doesn't get you know, a, a new pen after 10 years of service and a new watch after 25, something that doesn't get raises, but it is the calling of God. It is work and it bears fruit and out of it you give and you bless others. That's true of every human being, and it's true of every follower of Christ. Well, here's the one verse I want you to see, because Ephesians 4.28 just does the heavy lifting all at once for us in, in very short order, okay? So you, you see the tracks I'm running on, because I'm going to talk about work today, all right? And you're like, how did he get from do not steal to work? Answer, Ephesians 4.28, if you want the short answer. The longer answer, the whole Bible. But let's take a look at a, a passage now, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, because we're going to get a similar thing here, a similar uh, emphasis, but with a, a slightly different context. So, sorry, did I fill in the blank for you? I didn't. Ephesians 4, the, redeef, the redeemed thief works, here's your three things, the redeemed thief works, produces good, and meets others' needs. That's what I meant to say, but never did. The beautiful thing is the gospel takes one whose pattern of life has been to just steal from others, if necessary, brutally and cruelly, if necessary, mercilessly, mercilessly picking on the weak. But when we come to Christ, we're transformed in such a profound way that the thief now doesn't just stop stealing. The thief starts working. 
and starts producing what's good and starts meeting others' needs. All right, 2 Thessalonians 3, we'll find one mark of a new life is godly earnestness. Same idea about work, but slightly different focus here. One mark of the new life in Christ is godly earnestness. Pick up 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. That would be like stealing, right? You get the point in the context? There it is. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Here, it's possible that in context in Thessalonica, the problem is maybe just the church's generosity. Maybe just because the church, when it gathers together, is willing to meet needs. And as a result, there are some of, of lesser character who have decided, hey, this is a pretty sweet deal. This is a great meal ticket. Just hang with these folks and say that I'm big on that Nazarene guy and they just give me stuff, man. That's a nice way to roll. And some are taking advantage of it. But it may also be intensified by a problem that's brought up, we know, that's present in Thessalonica in both the first and the second letter that Paul writes them, which is that some have an overemphasis on the return of Christ. We know that's a problem because Paul addresses it. I just want to be clear to you, what's, what's never clearly spelled out is whether or not people being freeloaders is because of the idea that they're over-focused on the return of Christ. But it's not a huge leap either. In fact, we know at different times in the history of the church that there have been false prophets who have come forward and they said, hey, by the way, Jesus is returning in 1814. And so you got hordes of people who sell their stuff move to the hills, and watch the skies. And then 1814 comes and goes. And they go, oh, <laughs> I miscalculated. Sorry, it's 1894. You won't see it in your lifetime. But, but now that I've got it all down, I mean, continue to follow me. It, just, it was a math error, but I was hearing from God the whole time. Absolutely. It could be that that's part of what's going on in Thessalonica, and that's why they're not working. It's a pious not working. It's a... It's a freeloading, but looking super spiritual while they're doing it, right? I'm kind of above, you know, going to work because I'm really spiritual. And so when Jesus comes, I'll be at the front of the line or whatever. In either case, this problem is clearly present in Thessalonica. We know that because Paul will address the problem of not workingness in both the first and the second letter, in addition to addressing the issue of the timing of Christ's return. Paul then urges them what in this passage that I just read to an earnest lifestyle. And he gives himself as an example. Look again at verse 8. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. By the way, does Paul ever, as a missionary, going out into Gentile territories, preaching the gospel, ever 
rely upon the support of the people so that he can devote himself 100% of the time to the ministry of the word? Answer, absolutely. But he's wise enough to know that in certain communities, he chooses not to do that. He foregoes that right. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 9. Not because we do not have this right. I have the right as a missionary, Paul says, for me to give you spiritual things and you to pay me back with physical things. That was the nature of the work that God gave him, and it was well established in Scripture. But Paul said, when I came here, I decided to forego that right because I knew y'all are struggling with a particular problem. And I want to be the solution. I don't want to be someone who greases that slippery slope for you. So again, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, verse 8, but with labor and hardship, hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. What was Paul's task? You guys know, don't you? What was he? He's a tent maker, right? He was a tanner, a skinner, worked with hides. It was a trade that he knew and sometimes he chose to employ in different places so that he could support himself so that it would not reflect badly upon the ministry of the gospel. It wouldn't look like he was using the gospel to find a way to support himself. Verse 9, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So Paul says that he and his compatriots are a mark of godly earnestness that comes out of knowing Christ. What if, what if every Christian was known for being the best worker at their workplace, for being the most honest in their dealings with people, for, for not taking credit for anything that somebody else had done, but always giving credit away, not stealing it? What if? You think that'd make a difference in the world? Brothers and sisters, some of you are that example. And I praise God for you. And the Lord rejoices over you because some of you are exceedingly diligent to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in Titus 2, through your work. You make the gospel beautiful when you live that way, whether it's in your workplace or it's in your home. In, or whether, whether it's the, as the mom of the student interacting with the other moms, with the kids at school, whatever it is, the industrious woman of integrity in her words and her actions and her deeds, or the man everywhere he goes, what a difference that makes and can make. Now, we all fall short. I, 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 I like an afternoon off every now and then, or maybe, you know, the month of March. Whatever feels right. It's not easy. But the Spirit is always willing, and He lives in us. And He renews our strength and gives us grace. And, and to follow in His footsteps is the um, easy yoke and the light burden of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We've just got to decide, you know, what I'm doing is carrying on my burden to make myself happy and try and seek my fulfillment. If I would just give myself to the vocation of what God has given me to, I would find my steps lightened sometimes. Well, you get the point. We're going to come back to that verse, Ephesians 4, and this passage now a few times, and we're going to use them as sort of our launching point. So um, keep this spot marked in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to turn to some other passages as we go as well. 
and Lord willing, let these lay out for us two different kinds of life. Okay, you ready? First, what I think scripture, scripture says to us, and I think this is just the broader context of the you shall not steal command, falls under this far bigger biblical theology of work and production and God's purpose for our lives, okay? That's what I'm arguing. So let's contrast then two lives, a life of dissipation, a life of dissipation, and then a life of generation or production, a life of dissipation and a life of generation. First, the life of dissipation. This is the life that wastes. I want to clarify one thing. The issue that we're talking about today is not the person who is unable to work, okay? But the person who is unwilling. Look at verse 10 again. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. What does it say? If someone is not able to work, they shouldn't eat, right? It's not what the passage says not willing. That's the issue we're talking about. I remember my, uh, my dad from time to time, um, if uh, I don't know if he thought we weren't pulling our weight or something or our chores weren't done, he would just, he would just ramble it off. You know, if you don't work, you don't eat. I had no idea my, my dad was so biblical. <laughs> it's right there in 2 Thessalonians 4.10. Um, the idea has been around for a long time. By the way, parents, that's free. You can use that at home. Um, it's not mine. It's in Scripture. The issue is the unwillingness. Proverbs 6 is another passage that talks about the sluggard as one who finds myriad excuses. And that's the point. It's the character of the heart that's now producing the fruit of the laziness. And the Lord says that life is not blessed. In fact, that life is a life of waste. It's a life of dissipation. All right, so I want you to notice four symptoms that come from the life of dissipation, okay? Four symptoms that grow out of this kind of life. They're found in this passage and in others. First, um, first symptom is that person becomes a burden to others. The person who is unwilling to work. I, I feel like today, by the way, is dad day. I just feel like I'm going to feel like a dad all day. Sorry. So I, don't, I hope that's not condescending. It's just what this topic does. If you're unwilling to work, you'll be a burden to others. I feel like I should say son, you know, after that. Um, <laughs> if you're unwilling to work, you'll be a burden to others. Look at verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Look at the end of verse 8. So that we would not be a burden to any of you. And the issue is not inability, it's unwillingness, verse 10. So that's what we're talking about here. Now God is sovereign in his providence. And God is sovereign in his purpose. And there may be seasons of life where we might be unable to work. There may be people where, in God's providence, they are unable for a lifetime to do some kinds of work. But God has a purpose in all of that. And they still are gifted and have things to offer. Theirs does not need to be a life of dissipation. And the Lord gets all of that. They don't fall, oh, outside the rules and they don't fit. No, just the opposite. The problem is not the understanding of God's purpose. Well, the problem is not God's purpose. The problem is our understanding of it. It is not his desire that we find it easy to be a leech when we just choose to be wasteful. 
we've been gifted to do otherwise. Second symptom comes from the life of dissipation is that it squanders your gifts. It squanders your gifts. Notice the language that's used here in verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. A little bit further in verse 7, he says, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner. So he's talking about not being unruly, not being undisciplined. And then jump over to uh, down to verse 11. We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. I will say choosing to do no work at all. Paul says this with, with an edge of frustration. Are you kidding me? You're not willing, he says. The point is there's no effort. No effort when God has gifted you, when God has formed you in your mother's womb, when God, through the coming of the Spirit into your life, when you came to know Christ, has endowed you with spiritual gifts that can be used in myriad ways for his purpose. What a waste of his beautiful gifts to just sit back on our couches and say, you know what, I'm kind of good. Everything just comes to me. Now, enter here a full sermon about godly leisure and the right receiving of rest. Got it? Good. Done. That's for another time. It doesn't mean you can never rest. It just means that you can't not work, if I said that right. What does Ephesians say? It says that you are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, that he formed you like a master artist, and that he created in advance good works for you to do so that, so that you might just walk in them. You're like, oh, that sounds easy. I just walk. Well, yes, walk in the Spirit, which, by the way, at times will take great discipline and is great work to decide what is the right path or to overcome our, our inertia towards our natural selfish laziness, mine included for sure, and to say, no, you've given me a good work to do. You know, in light of Ephesians 2.10, that's the passage I was quoting, there are sometimes, I, I probably don't remember this nearly as often as I should, but on a few occasions, I'll be fair, probably a few occasions in my life, I've specifically remembered that verse when I felt like there was something that God wanted me to do that I knew I didn't want to do. And so eventually having to come around to the point of admitting, but I don't want to, God. And he's like, yeah. So I'm there in prayer, being honest in confession with God. And Ephesians 2.10, by the grace of God, once in a while comes to mind. And I think, you know what? There is a blessing in doing this, isn't there? There's a blessing in it, and I don't want to miss that. There's a reward. There is good in this work. Right now, I don't want to do it. And I may not see the blessing, I may not know what good comes out of that work, but I know if you created it, it's a glorious thing. That's a hopeful place to be, isn't it? To say, I don't want to, but I know that you want to and you live in me, and you have a purpose and a plan and something beautiful in this. Well, that's just one of myriad ways we can get over that hump. Jot down 1 Peter 4.10, I'll read it to you, that also talks about this need for discipline because we don't naturally give ourselves away in the flesh, connecting to this idea about our gifts and not squandering them. 
First Peter 4.10 says, As each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Do you hear the lavishness in that? The manifold, the multifaceted grace of God that's been poured out into your life by the Spirit who lives in you and has endowed you with a particular gift that can be used in myriad ways. Employ it is the command. The symptom of a life of dissipation is that it squanders your gifts. Third symptom, it spreads strife and contention. The life of dissipation spreads strife and contention. So if we're just going to waste our time and waste our energies, it's not just bad enough that we're missing out on all the positive stuff that we should be doing, but we're actually, in the process, prone to and eventually will produce negative stuff. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. And where does that lead? End of verse 11, but acting like busybodies. Uh, the Greek word that's used there is, uh, has the idea of being an interferer. It's being a meddler. It's somebody who gets in the way of other good people who are just trying to do their work. So rather than being busy with our bodies, we are busy bodies. And so we tend to talk about things we shouldn't and invest our energies in ways we shouldn't and invite people to enjoy us, join in with us in our mud puddle of wasteful living, either through their words or their energies or their attentions. That's what the dissipating life does. Solution is given right there by Paul in verse 12. Now such persons, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. I love that, to work in quiet fashion. When I was at Desert Springs Church for a short time uh, on staff there, um, we had an admin assistant, and uh, her husband uh, was named Volney. Uh, I had a lot of respect for Volney. He was a very low-key, uh, just like a salt-of-the-earth, man's man kind of a guy, could fix anything, didn't want to be the center of attention, just hugely respected this man. Um, his work took him to gravel pits, um, one day, uh, he, he, every day he would drive and drop off his wife at the church, and then he'd go to work, and then at the end of the day, he'd come and pick her up, and they always drove together because they came from a long ways. Uh, one day, he called her, and uh, he told her, he's like, oh, hey, honey, I just want you to know, you know I'm in the car, I'm on the way, and uh, hey, uh, I've, I've got something to show you. So she gets off the phone, and she calls a couple of us, you know, they're there in the office. She's like, I have a pretty good idea of what I think this might be. Um, but it may be something you guys want to see, so why don't you, why don't you guys come, because Volney's coming. Um, sure enough, he pulls up in his huge truck, and he's holding his arm straight out, and his uh, hand is wrapped around the head of a rattler, and its tail is just about touching the ground, not quite. And it's got several large holes blown through it uh, with the handgun that he was carrying at the time that it surprised him, and he was not happy to be surprised. I don't even know why I told you that story, because it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, except to give you an introduction to the background of Volney. Because Volney told me one time that he had a life verse. You want to know what Volney's life verse was? Uh, flip back a page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the place in the other letter that Paul writes to these Christians in Thessalonica, where he addresses the exact same thing. 
1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12, this was Volney's life verse, and I've never forgot it since that day. He says, this is my ambition. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. That's a pretty sweet life verse, isn't it? And, and, and this dude lived it. I mean, he was, a, I can't read the verse without thinking of that man to this day. A quiet life to behave properly. You see, what's the old adage? Um, empty time, empty hands is what's the devil's playground, right? That's the old adage. Too much time on our hands, on our lips, on our hearts, means that we will probably use them to find the wrong things to do. Our hands, our lips, and our hearts will probably find something to invest themselves in. That's what we have here in the admonition in 1 Thessalonians and here the command in 2 Thess Thessalonians. Life of dissipation spreads strife and contention. Fourth symptom, finally, the life of dissipation steals. And that's the connection. You see, that I think the idea here is getting um, back to the roots in part. We have stealing inherently as a transgression in what Paul has said in verses 8 and 9. Everything that we've, we've just said about burdening others unnecessarily. It is not wrong to be supported by another person. Families are commanded to do that for one another, right? Churches are called to do that for people in particular situations, right? There are commands for such things. But if it's an unwillingness and due to nothing else, if it's just a selfishness of the heart, then it's theft and it's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Jot down Proverbs chapter 30. And I'll just read to you Proverbs chapter 30. Listen to the prayer of the godly ancient Israelite who came to the Lord and said, Lord, if I could ask for your protection, this is what I would ask your protection from. Are you ready? We don't usually pray like this. I don't usually think like this. Proverbs 30, actually starting in verse 7, 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me, that's number one, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I might not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord, or that I might not, and, or, or that I might not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Or please don't give me too much so that I forget that I even need you, and Lord, Please provide for me enough so that I'm not tempted to go and dishonor your name. This is what the godly Israelite prayed because he understood that poverty could be a burden and that it can lead to, sadly, a, a thinking and a lifestyle that says, well, I deserve, so I will go and get. Even the most industrious among us who are in no way in danger of not being workers, we can still justify stealing, can't we? We can still do it and give good reasons. Well, I work so hard, I ought to be able to have this, 
whenever I want it. But anytime we neglect our duty or anytime we give in to that mind of thinking, then we're just courting temptation to meet our needs in other ways that God has not provided. At bottom, this fourth symptom is most simply addressed by asking God or asking yourself, has God not provided all that he has promised? And if you think the answer is no, then the place to start is in prayer, right? A life of dissipation. We could look at other passages and we could multiply them. All four of them are exampled in 2 Thessalonians and other places as well. But let's finish today by looking at several examples of a life of generation. This is the life that bears fruit, the, the life that produces, the life that even, even waters others, if you want. Five symptoms, if you want to call them that, or five fruits of the life of generation. First, that life is given provision for itself by God. It is given provision for itself by God through its work. Uh, what do we have there in verse 12? Paul says, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. In other words, by virtue of the hard work, they're able to provide for themselves. Jot down another passage because it's instructive in all of this. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This is the Apostle Paul, right as he is about to leave from the region of Ephesus, and he is commending the leaders of the churches. He calls the elders to him on the seashore. And these are men he's invested his lives in. They've seen him suffer. They've probably cried with him and prayed with him. They may have even doctored some of his wounds at times. And as he's going to step onto the ship and sail away, he doesn't know if he'll ever see them again. This is people that he's visited on a couple of occasions and he's invested in them. And, and he leaves them with kind of these parting words. Uh, Acts 20, verses 33 to 35, if you just want to jot it down. He writes, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, right? I didn't steal. In fact, I didn't even have the heart to steal. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and you must remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. A life of generation is what Paul had. Wherever he went, he generated life, first and foremost through the gospel and through teaching the truth and through, through setting people free. But in addition, just by his character, he was a hard worker. And what he did, he provided for himself and even for others, it says. Well, we could look at other passages and other verses, but you get the idea. Second fruit of a life of generation is what we just mentioned. That life is given provision for others. That life is given provision for itself, but also that life is given provision for others. That's right there in Acts chapter 20. Um, yeah, it's obviously here as well uh, to he eat his own bread. Oh, providing for others. Sorry, that's there in verse 13. But for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Well, how are we going to do good? In the context of what he has just said, you will have something with which to give, have something out of which to do good things. And praise God, we have, we have individuals, we have families in this church who are wonderfully generous. And, and I know that's not just, just because you fell off a log. I know it's not just because you were 
born with a silver spoon is because you've worked hard for what you have. And yes, God in his grace has chosen to bless you and you thank God for it. And one of the ways you demonstrate that is through your generosity to others. And it's a beautiful thing. And man, you know you can't outgive God. You know that in eternity you'll be like, Lord, you gave me the grace to give this gift to further this ministry or to impact this person's life or to, to, to give them relief in their time of need. And look at what you did that with that. Look at how you multiplied it. And you let me support others in the time of their need. Lord, I didn't even need this for all eternity to see all the spiritual things you did. I was just happy to be able to share the things you had provided for me. I was happy they weren't hungry or whatever it is that you gave to. But man, there's an eternal reward and that's glorious. That's the, the doing good that we find in 13. Third, fruit, good work. A life of generation bears fruit in good work. Work itself is good. I've already talked about that from the garden in Genesis, that work is intrinsically a good. It's there back in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, you don't have to flip, but I'll read it to you. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good. What is it that he's performing with his hands? Is it a sonata? If you stop stealing, you'll know how to do classical music. No, that's not the context context is his hands will find good work, productive, good efforts, and it itself is good. And I'm not talking about the fruits that come from it. I'm just talking the, the work itself is a good thing in multiple ways, isn't it? Our passage ends, I said, like I mentioned before back in 2 Thessalonians in verse 13, do not grow wearying of doing good. That's, that's both the work itself which is good, and then the produce that comes from it that blesses others. What sweet encouragements. Fourth fruit of a life of generation is that that person's marked by generosity. The fourth fruit is generosity marks that person's life. Not just supporting others, but a regular heart and attitude which is generous in spirit, which may, which may not just be the actual money or resources that come out of it, but a generosity of spirit. Well, we see the generosity there in, um, in 8. No, I'm sorry, not there in 8. Back in Acts, um, in Acts 20, when he tells those church leaders to help the weak and be blessed to give. In Ephesians 4, when it mentions having something to share, in Titus 3, Paul writes there, and he says um, to work hard so that through good deeds, that we would have good deeds for pressing needs. I like that because it rhymes. Good deeds for pressing needs, but the word for deeds is actually occupations. It's the idea of good work that meets pressing needs. It creates a heart of generosity. I don't think this follows from natural thinking. And I think maybe apart from the spirit at work in somebody's life, I don't know that these dots necessarily connect for everyone. But scripturally speaking, to work hard unto the Lord, if the spirit's having his way in your life, you know what it creates in you? Not more of a sense of selfish entitlement, but rather just the opposite. A heart to say this work itself, Lord, is good. Thank you. And out of it, 
I want to give just as you have even given me the ability to work. And then finally, a life of generation, fifth symptom, is that it is a witness for Christ. It is a witness for Christ. That's right here again in this not growing weary of doing good in our passage. It's very much there back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he says in verse 12, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. You see, the world thinks of Christians and especially churches as being people and places that are always walking around with their hand out looking for something. They expect if I go show up at church, they're going to ask me to give money for something. What if we were known in our diligence, in our generous heartedness, in our ability to support ourselves and others, if we were known for that in such a way that it just showed, no, we're just a people who love to give and who are happy to work and God has provided in every way. What a witness that would be. If you want to go a couple books to your right, Titus chapter 2, I mentioned this verse before, but it's, it's worth our actually reading it. Titus chapter 2 is the responsibilities for us in all of our different spheres of life as men and women, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, and as workers. And it's that last one that uses this great phrase, which I may have written down the wrong verse to. I did. There it is. Titus 2.10. If I said Titus 2.14 earlier, that was wrong. If you have that somewhere else in your notes, it's Titus 2.10. We'll start in 9. Urge bond slaves or servants or employees. Yes, you're a slave every week. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, well-pleasing, not argumentative. Here it is, not pilfering. Oh, there's that not steal thing again. But, don't you love it? Not stealing, but, this is the eighth commandment, showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And if you're, if you're struggling with doing your work, well and doing it is unto the Lord. There are so many good books written by godly Christian men and women about the intrinsic value of work done unto the Lord. I mean, right, that's a whole, that's not even a sermon, that's a, ser- it's a sermon series in itself. But, but the key idea, I think, is Titus 2.10. Work done unto the Lord adorns the gospel. It makes the message of the gospel beautiful. And that is a glorious thing. G.K. Beale tells the story of Mildred. An executive at a London corporation would often often pass by an office where several typists worked. This was before the computer era. The executive noticed that one particular woman was more diligent in the way she typed, working faster and taking fewer breaks than the others. After a few weeks, he asked a friend at work why she was so industrious. The friend responded, oh, that's Mildred. She's a Christian. The executive pondered this. After a few more weeks, he went and asked the typist herself why she worked in such a manner. She responded, I'm a Christian, and I serve Christ. I work heartily for him, and not merely for my human boss. This conversation led that man to investigating the faith further, and eventually he placed his faith in Christ. 
A few years later, that successful businessman was at an event where he spoke about his conversion and he told his testimony. Someone in the crowd also hearing the story because of that executive's testo testimony about Mildred, in large part because of Mildred, also came to Christ through that address. That person, and G.K. Beale doesn't give his name, so I'm sorry, I don't know who it is. G.K. Beale says that second person has now become a well-known theologian and enjoys talking about Mildred the typist and her faithful witness for Christ that won him to salvation. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much that you give us such wise and fundamental and clear core truths in your Ten Commandments to show us where smart, godly boundaries are. Do not steal. And yet, there's so much more that flows out of that that you have given us in your word, both in the law and now especially through your spirit, through Christ and through the New Testament, that we can live as productive people who generate good in our lives. Thank you that you have redeemed us from lives of dissipation. Thank you that you've turned us from being thieves for our own glory to being those who generate more glory to Jesus because of your work through us, our great God. I pause because there are myriad clarifications I would have loved to have given today and it would have killed this sermon by a million paper cuts. I pray every one of those little details that we didn't even have time for, the yeah, what about things, would you lead people to know how to address those to your word, to godly counsel, by your spirit, just to guide their steps. But Lord, let none of us walk away without knowing you have given us a great call to be your children and to work for your eternal kingdom. And every one of us gets to do that in some way. Lord, protect our hearts and convict us, Lord. Convict me when I want to take what's not mine. Help me live with an open hand and help me learn and grow because I have much to learn. May you have all the glory. We'll praise you for it. And Lord, may you multiply Mildred the typist a million times over. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great week as you serve.